0: Welcome to the Employment Law and HR Podcast with your host, Alison Colley. Hello and welcome to this episode 126 of the Employment Law and HR Podcast. I'm your host, Alison Colley. I'm an employment law specialist and HR solicitor, and I run the firm Real Employment Law Advice. Thank you very much for tuning in to this week's episode. This week we're going to be talking about quite an interesting topic and that is the the Women and Equalities Committee's report on the use of non-disclosure agreements in discrimination cases. And The reason why this is interesting is because it's something that has been in the news lately and is fairly topical and something that I think all employers need to be aware of. Now, if you're listening to this episode and at the end you think, oh my goodness, I don't know what to do. I can't believe that we could put our organisation at risk in such a way. Then never fear. You can get legal advice and practical HR advice from Real Employment or Advice at what I consider to be a very reasonable price. So if you'd like to get in touch and would like a free initial no-obligation telephone call, then we can set this up. You can contact me by email. It's alison at realemploymentoradvice.co.uk and I'd be happy to set that up. So without further ado, I'm going to get into this week's featured content. As I said, This week's episode is regarding non-disclosure agreements and I was prompted to record this episode about this topic following an article that was written by my colleague Miranda Amos a couple of weeks ago and which you can find on our website under Legal Updates and I will link to in the show notes for this podcast. But I found the article to be really interesting and very important, I would say, for employers. And so I was prompted to actually delve in and review the report myself and to record this podcast. So what I'm covering is the report by the Women and Equalities Committee of the House of Commons into the use of non-disclosure agreements in discrimination cases. So to start with, I'm just going to cover what is a non-disclosure agreement. Well, Non disclosure agreements, in the traditional sort of legal sense, as you might imagine them, are or can be agreements between employers and employees to deal with commercial or sensitive information or to protect intellectual property or inventions that sort of thing so typically uh, particularly high technology organizations will require their employees to enter into a a non-disclosure agreement or an NDA to prevent them from disclosing information outside of the organization and NDAs can sometimes be used where there is the sale of a business for example and you're disclosing information to the seller and you don't want them to then subsequently pass that on Um, So that's the NDAs in the traditional sense. But really what the report was talking about here is their use in employment contracts. So that is a general restriction on the production of confidential information, um, which is contained within employment contracts. But most notably, what is used in settlement agreements to require former employees to keep matters confidential and normally not to make any derogatory or defamatory or adverse comments about the employer when they leave. So really what we're talking about and what the committee were focusing on was the use of these types of clauses within settlement agreements where employees were settling claims or potential claims for discrimination. So if you're not already familiar with what a settlement agreement is, in short, it's a way in which employers and employees can reach an agreement to waive the employee's rights or to settle their claims legally. And in order to be legally binding, a settlement agreement must set out various information and be set out in a certain format, And the employee must have had legal advice on the content of the settlement agreement. Now, for years, or in the time that I've been advising on settlement agreements anyway, there is almost always the requirement for the employee to agree to keep the facts and circumstances leading up to the settlement agreement confidential and not to make any adverse or derogatory comments about their employer. Now the reason why employers include this and why businesses I advise include this is in order to protect the reputation of the business so that the employee can't make their allegations public and the employer gets a certainty of knowing that they are paying a sum of money to the employee in order to waive those rights, but also with the reassurance that their reputation is not going to be risked. Now this is where the issue has arisen, because there have been some high profile cases where organisations or individuals have been named and shamed for numerous Allegations of discrimination, and then it turns out that they have used settlement agreements or non disclosure agreements within those settlement agreements to cover things up. Most notably, there was the chap, Sir Philip Green, who's the owner of Topshop. You would have certainly seen that on the news or on social media about the various issues of abuse and sexual harassment that have come to light. Now, these types of clauses in settlement agreements aren't just used in discrimination cases or issues around sexual harassment, for example. Um, They are used quite commonly in settlement agreements and certainly in those that I prepare. And it's really about the wider issue of how employees are treated as to why these types of clauses have come into criticism and are being covered by this review. Now, in summary, the report has concluded that the use of non-disclosure agreements within settlements and clauses that prevent employees from making disclosures later on are contrary to what should be the way in which the world of work works. And those of you who have listened to the podcast in the past will know that I try to champion employers and business owners being the best employers and business owners they can Because in my view, if you are a fantastic employer, then you are going to have a fantastic business. But the issue here is where organisations are not putting in place the right procedures and policies and preventing discrimination from taking place. Instead, are just using blanket settlement agreements to cover them up. And interestingly, what the report in the summary says is that non-disclosure agreements are at best murky and at worst a convenient vehicle for covering up unlawful activity with legally sanctioned secrecy. Many of the criticisms of non-disclosure agreements come about because of the impact that that has on the victim, so the employees concerned, whilst they get to settle the case at the immediate time. There is evidence and evidence being produced for the committee that later on employees suffer from various emotional and psychological damage following the signing of a settlement agreement with an NDA in it and they can have difficulty in pursuing their career and have issues financially later on. So whilst it might deal with the issue in the immediate time there are longer term potential damage to individuals who are signing these types of agreements. There is also the fact that where secrecy agreements are used regularly and issues are not dealt with that there can be a number of victims and the pattern of behavior or discrimination can continue within an organization and those people who've gone before are unable to provide help or support or evidence for colleagues or former colleagues who may be suffering later on as a result of the same behaviors And so it prevents people from coming forward in the first place, but also when they do come forward, it means that they're unable to get support or to obtain evidence that would support their own case. It is seen that the use of secrecy agreements in some way helps to encourage a culture of discrimination and systematic discrimination. And there was a number of evidence that was put forward to the committee from various sources with this regard because essentially what they're saying and as I can see it myself I've seen it in organisations not those that I advise I have to say but um, I've seen it in organisations where I've advised the employees there is no will amongst management to try to tackle issues and behaviours and there are some people within organisations who can be seen as being untouchable and therefore The cycle of discrimination continues and there are more and more victims of that. So what the committee are saying is that if employers weren't allowed to use blankets or secrecy clauses or NDAs, then it would encourage organisations to tackle those issues and certainly would encourage others to come forward who suffer the same fate as their colleagues. The committee in their report also highlighted concerns about the balance of power between employers and employees and that this being one of the key reasons why NDAs are commonplace in settlement of discrimination cases because in most cases it is the employer who has the unlimited funds to fight a case and they tend to have more power in terms of for example, making a financial settlement conditional upon the employee signing an agreement that contains secrecy clauses. Now, there are some positives and some positives put forward for the use of secrecy clauses. And that is to say that, and I agree with this, in some cases for the employee having the secrecy clause and the non-derogatory or defamatory or adverse comments clause is advantageous to them as well. Because for many employees, they just want to move on. They don't want to go through the stress and the length of time that the employment tribunal takes to conclude matters. And they are also concerned about their own reputation. So having clauses that require the employer not to make any adverse or derogatory comments about them are also of benefit to the employees. So I can see, and I have dealt with cases, where employees just really want the matter to be dealt with, they don't want to talk about it any further, and they do just want to move on with their lives. And having those types of secrecy clauses in there is an additional bargaining chip, if you like, with employers, so that the employee can put to the employer that they would be prepared to drop their claims in return for a sum of money, but also they would agree to keep things confidential. So it adds a layer of additional protection for the employer and that they can protect their reputation as well and for many employers that this is an attractive prospect. So if those secrecy clauses were no longer included or couldn't be agreed between the parties then it may not be as attractive for employers to settle their cases and they may be more inclined to take a chance with the employment tribunal. If they know that the employee could talk about the allegations freely in any event, even if they pay them to settle their employment tribunal claims. Now, again, on the flip side of it, as someone who has advised employers who have had malicious allegations made against them, and allegations that have absolutely no substance, I can see why employers would be unhappy if they couldn't protect their reputation and why they would much rather go forward to an employment tribunal to have the matter aired in public and to clear their name than if they signed a settlement agreement that would mean that a malicious employee, for example, could continue to spread the false allegations about them. There are very few employers who don't look at things on a commercial basis and who would rather continue to defend a claim in the employment tribunal than to deal with it by way of a private settlement and earlier opportunity even if there are no basis for the allegations. So whilst I do support the use of these types of secrecy clauses or clauses that protect business reputation, I can see the importance of the recommendations that have been made by the Women Equalities Committee and how they can be seen to help tackle these rogue employers who are making no attempts to try to comply with the Equality Act and to be a good employer. There is a balance, as I say, between the good employers who are subject to malicious or unfounded allegations. Then you've got the employers who just get things wrong, who are not doing it in any way maliciously but perhaps they have not got the right training or procedures in place and then you've got those employers who just don't care who are quite happy for these types of behaviour to take place within their organisation and you know it's profit at any cost if you like and therefore it's the latter that I think that need to be tackled in relation to these recommendations. So what does the report recommend well, interestingly, the report goes a bit further than dealing with the issue of the use of non-disclosure agreements. And, and I welcome this. I'm really pleased that they have done this because I don't think you can look at it in isolation. So they have made recommendations to basically change the legal framework and the tribunal system in order to enable victims of discrimination to have a better way of getting redress for their issues or the behaviours that they have suffered. So I'm just going to summarise what the main recommendations of the reports are. So the first is a government-initiated awareness-raising programme for employers and employees about handling grievances fairly and effectively, including guidance on how to continue investigations into allegations of discrimination and harassment, even where a settlement has been agreed. Now this is quite an interesting one because You may recall, and those of you being around in HR and employment law for a while, that several years ago, there was a legislative change that came in, which made it mandatory for employers to follow a set disciplinary and grievance procedure. So employers who had failed to follow the minimum legal procedure If they failed to follow the disciplinary procedure, then they would find themselves with a claim for automatically unfair dismissal and an increase in compensation. And if they failed to follow the grievance procedure, then there would also be an increase of between 10 and 50 percent in compensation. Now, the outcome of the introduction of this mandatory set procedures was that, it led to a whole range of employment tribunal appeal cases and higher court cases in relation to how exactly it worked. And it didn't have the desired effect, which was to get more employers to act appropriately in circumstances of disciplinary and grievance issues. So there has already been an attempt to introduce a mandatory grievance procedure to be followed. And it just became very legalistic and didn't actually try to resolve the problem. So whilst I think that an awareness raising program on how to handle grievances is a great idea because the more employers who are aware of it, the better. I'm not really sure how else that will work unless they are going to introduce a more standard or rigid procedure for dealing with grievances. And if it doesn't come with a sanction, then frankly, it doesn't have any teeth and is unlikely to impact against those employers in the last category I was talking about who are the ones who flagrantly breach the procedures in any event. The second recommendation was the introduction of legislation to require employers to provide a minimum basic reference for former employees. So one of the tools of negotiation in relation to settlement of claims is often that the employer will provide a set reference so that the employee has certainty about what's being sent out about them when they leave. So oftentimes employees are concerned that if they've entered into a dispute or they've accused their boss or a former employer of discrimination that they will then be sent a negative reference or no reference at all and that will in turn prevent them from getting work in the future. And so Currently, there's no legal requirements on employers to provide a reference. So, unless one is agreed and negotiated under the terms of a settlement agreement, the employer is under no obligation to provide that. So, what they're suggesting here is legislation to require that all employers provide a basic reference for employees. The third recommendation was for legislation to make sure any clause in a legal agreement that limits the information an employee can share with others is clear and specific about what and what can't be shared and sets out acceptable forms of wording that the employee can use to explain why they left their jobs so to me this is what they're saying here is some form of set wording or regulation in relation to how these types of agreements are drafted and this may be one way around the idea of continuing with settlement agreements that are attractive to both parties but also allowing employees to say certain things by agreement after the settlement has been completed. The fourth recommendation, interestingly, isn't to rule out confidentiality and non-derogatory clauses altogether, but rather to provide legislation which requires them to be written in standard plain English so it's clear what the parties are agreeing to. Now, whilst, again, I always welcome anything that makes law into something that's plain English and easy for people to understand, what I think this is forgetting is that In order for a settlement agreement to be legally binding, an employee must have had legal advice on the terms and for it to have been signed off by somebody who's legally trained. And certainly when I'm advising on a settlement agreement, I will go through the terms with the employee and I will talk to them so that they understand exactly what they're signing. And then I will also follow that up in a letter, an advice letter, which is in plain English. And so in my view... This should already be taking place with the advice that's being provided between the employee and their legal advisor who signs off the settlement agreement. So I don't think that it's right to say that employees don't understand or don't have the means of understanding what these clauses mean if they're being advised correctly. The fifth allegation is to introduce legislation to make sure non-disclosure agreements cannot be used to silence victims of discrimination and harassment where discussion of allegations is in the public interest. Now this is an interesting one and there is already case law under whistleblowing legislation about what is in the public interest Um, and so I would wonder exactly where that would lie. So take the case of Sir Philip Green um, the owner of Topshop now would that be a case where the discrimination and harassment were in the public interest to be discussed so again I think if that were going to be introduced there would have to be clear parameters around what the public interest is and it may then in itself negate the purpose of having that in there if it's narrowed down to such an extent that very few cases would be seen to be in the public interest. The sixth recommendation was to extend the time limit for bringing claims in the employment tribunal from three months to six months in cases of alleged sexual harassment, pregnancy or maternity discrimination. Now this is an interesting one and certainly I'm not sure how employers would feel about it but I think that this is a sensible recommendation and something that should be looked at in any event because a three-month time limit... In relation to these types of claims is very difficult. I had an unfortunate case a couple of years back where the employee had suffered from pregnancy and maternity discrimination but unfortunately because she was on maternity leave she was tied up with a young baby she didn't have the time or the inclination to seek advice about it within enough time and by the time she came to me her claims were already out of time And it was very difficult to then pursue that. And this happens time and time again because the time limit runs from the last act of discrimination in a series of acts. And so the three month time goes by so quickly for employees. And therefore, I think extending the time limit does make it more fair and reasonable and more likely that employees who are being treated to their detriment by unscrupulous employers will have the opportunity to bring that forward. Recommendation number seven is to commission an equalities review of the employment tribunal system to consider whether particular groups of people or those bringing particular claims are disproportionately disadvantaged by the way the system operates, particularly with reference to time limits for bringing claims. And that refers back to what we we're talking about, about the earlier discrimination claims and the online publication of tribunal judgments. So again, whilst employers may be concerned about their own reputation if they are taken to the employment tribunal by an employee and then the judgment is published online, many employees are also concerned about that and whether they may then have a black mark against their name if uh, a new employer or prospective new employer finds out that they've made a claim. They might not ever have any inclination, but that's the reason why they didn't get the job. But it it is still possible that the new employer could Google them or look up and see that they've brought a claim and decide not to employ them. So I think that's an interesting uh, review that needs to take place. Recommendation number eight is to significantly increase compensation awards to do more to prevent discrimination and harassment in the workplace by introducing punitive damages and a presumption that tribunals will normally require a losing employer to pay an employee's costs in sexual harassment claims, and increasing the current awards available for injury to feelings and psychiatric harm. So taking the first point there about increasing the damages for employers who are flagrantly breaching the Equality Act and behaving unreasonably, I think, again, that's a welcome introduction to try to penalise those employers and make it painful for them financially to not deal with these issues. The second point in relation to the costs issue is something that I think will be of advantage in the employment tribunal system in any event across the board. So currently it is quite rare for the employment tribunal to award the legal costs to be paid by the losing party in the employment tribunal. Now in the county courts and civil courts there is generally a system where the costs follow the result so that though the party who's successful will have their costs paid by the losing party. Now in the employment tribunal because that doesn't happen, there are many cases in which employees just can't afford to fund the case themselves. Or take the risk that they could be paying out large amounts of legal costs. And actually that would then, any compensation that they get when successful with their case would be swallowed up by their legal costs. So it does put many people off. And particularly in discrimination cases, which can often require longer time to prepare. They're normally more heavily evidence based and they tend to have more witnesses and so are often listed over more days and all of those things increase the legal costs for an employee who has representation in the employment tribunal and so sometimes employees might be looking at it and when you calculate what their actual compensation is likely to be it could be 25000 for example and in a lengthy discrimination case in which it takes four to five days in the employment tribunal their costs could exceed 20000 And therefore, it can be quite difficult for employees to want to continue with a claim on that basis. And therefore, it becomes more attractive for them to settle and to sign the secrecy agreements or NDAs. So if the system was changed so that costs follow the result, in my view, it would assist more genuine claims in relation to discrimination. And it would also help those employers who are subject to those malicious or vexitious claims by employees, because in those circumstances, they would be able to recover their costs from the employee who has brought the claim maliciously. The ninth proposal is to require employers to pay the legal costs of an employee for getting advice on any proposed settlement agreement, including advice on the content and effect of the clauses in relation to confidentiality and non-drogatory comments, etc., and such contribution to be paid whether or not the employee signs the agreement. Now, currently, there's no legal requirement on an employer to pay the legal costs for a settlement agreement, but it is standard practice. So most employers will make a contribution or make an offer of a contribution to legal costs for the employee signing the agreement. But that is only payable normally if the employee signs the agreement. So if the employee seeks legal advice and spends a couple of hours getting advice on their claims and on the terms of the agreement and then they conclude actually it's not appropriate for me to sign it because of the let's just say the clauses requiring me to keep the discrimination and harassment confidential then the employer will not make that contribution and the employee will have incurred costs and will have to pay those themselves and so sometimes again employees feel that they have no choice but to sign the settlement agreement because they just can't afford one to fight it and then to also have to pay the legal costs that they've incurred. So this change would enable employees to get legal advice, but at the expense of the employer. Now, again, I don't think that's going to be very attractive or helpful for employers, uh, but I suppose it would help to get around this issue of concern in relation to discrimination and secrecy. The 10th recommendation is to place a mandatory duty on employers to protect workers from harassment and victimisation in the workplace, breach of which will lead to substantial financial penalties. Again, that it sounds like it has good basis, but it would have to be drafted and implemented in such a way so as to make it easy for employers and to avoid a situation where there is a whole offshoot of legal cases to try to determine what exactly is required under this mandatory duty the 11th recommendation is to require employers to appoint a board level manager someone above hr to oversee anti-discrimination and harassment policies and procedures and the use of ndas now in my view employers should be doing this anyway good employers should be doing it and i think you'll find that good employers are Um, but again it's also another way of helping to resolve this issue i suppose and should be fairly easy for employers to implement. And the twelfth recommendation is to strengthen corporate governance requirements on all companies, both public and private, to require them to meet their responsibilities to protect those they employ from discrimination and harassment. Again, good idea, but how it's going to be implemented would be interesting to find out. So as you'll see from the recommendations, in summary, they're not recommending that the use of Non disclosure agreements and confidentiality clauses is outlawed altogether, but that there are other parameters in place to ensure that they are appropriately used and not abused. So, what do you need to do in the meantime? Well, if you aren't already looking at your own internal procedures about grievances and how you deal with claims for harassment and discrimination, then I recommend that you do regardless of the reports or the recommendations in the report, it's important as a good employer to ensure that you act fairly and reasonably towards your employees. In my view, we're moving into a time where there is going to be less of a workforce available, less skilled people available, and the competition for good quality employees is going to be hard. And so you need to make your business as attractive as possible to future employees. And you can do that by ensuring that you behave fairly and you have those robust procedures in place. The second thing to do is if you are offering employees a settlement agreement for any reason, either before their employment is terminated or after their employment is terminated, or in the course of employment tribunal proceedings, then you should have somebody legally trained, check it over, and ensure that it is drafted correctly, and that you're not going to fall foul of any criticism for the use of confidentiality or NDAs in those agreements unnecessarily. So instead of just using your blanket template settlement agreement, that you always have Have someone check it over and look at it on a case-by-case basis to see whether you really do need to include those clauses in there or if you can make them somewhat less restrictive whilst also protecting the reputation of the business. Mm Now I have covered a lot in this podcast so if you have any questions or you want to chat through any scenarios or if you just want some help in reviewing your own grievance procedures to ensure that you're acting fairly then do get in touch with me. My email is allison at realemploymentlawadvice.co.uk. We also provide training and resources for businesses in relation to how you deal with these kinds of issues, investigations, that sort of thing. So if you like any training, we can come to your business and provide a bespoke training session for you, either a half day or a full day. Again, if you want to get in touch, then I can provide you with a quote for that. Or if your organisation just doesn't feel that you have the resources or the expertise to undertake these investigations, then we have members of staff here who are trained and skilled in undertaking such investigations for you. So if you really want to ensure that allegations of harassment and discrimination are being dealt with appropriately, you can appoint an external advisor who can review those, undertake the investigation and provide the report for you. Again, if you'd like any information about that, you can contact me by email. Any inquiry is confidential, so don't worry about getting in touch. It's Allison at RealEmploymentAdvice.co.uk. Just before I sign off, I want to say thank you again for listening to the podcast, for continuing to download and to share. If you are happy with what you've been listening to and you're enjoying the podcast, then you can always leave me a review in itunes or spotify or wherever you're listening to the podcast or alternatively if you'd like to send me um, your review or testimonial then i'll be happy to include that on the website you can again get in touch with me by email alison at realemploymentadvice.co.uk or you can contact me by linkedin i'd be happy to connect with you and then finally you can find all the details about the firm and this podcast on our website which is adviceforemployers.co.uk